Well, open up in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Acts chapter 2. This is the third week, the last week of a three-week series uh, that we've just called Uncommon. The whole idea that we've been putting before us is that um, we belong to an uncommon God in an uncommon community marked by uncommon love. The moment that our faith becomes common to us, the moment that we have this uncommon faith which becomes all of a sudden natural and routine like it's just a part of our everyday life, I want you to know this, you should be very afraid. You, you, you're, you should have all the bells and whistles, whatever that thing is in your heart, going like, this is way too normal for me right now because um, we have an uncommon God, amen? We have an uncommon love to give. And uh, we, we're going to do that, and I'm going to show you today one last characteristics about what God designed our community to look like. And it's found in Acts chapter 2, and it's, it's this one word. It's generosity. Generosity. Would you say that with me? Generosity. Yeah, today I want to just uh, explain how generosity is the ultimate expression, the ultimate mark of love for one another. Generosity is the, it's the mark of love for one another. That's kind of just a, a working definition I want to put up on the screen. It's, it's, generosity is, is the mark of love for one another. How, how does the world see that you and I love one another the same way Jesus loved us? Well, it's generosity. Generosity. Some of you, this is your first time here at our campus. I'm so glad that you're here. And um, you hear us as a church say the word generosity, and all of a sudden you think, uh, what is that? Generosity. This past week at VBS, um, I had the privilege of hanging out in the kids' classroom where they were being taught. And uh, one of the teachers asked this great question to the kids, these little, little kindergartners. And she asked them, who, who knows how you can be generous to one another? And one kid raises his hand. He's like a kindergartner. He says, well, if your neighbor doesn't have a car, you could buy him one. <laughs> I was like, wow. I took out my pen. I was like, I'm going to write these down. This is, I'm going to preach on generosity on Sunday. This is good stuff. Buy your neighbor a car. Anybody think that's generous? Everybody's like, yeah. Anybody want to be a recipient of that generosity? <laughs> You're like, I wish that kid was my neighbor. Right. And then the next girl who, who um, raised her hand, she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, like if, if your friend's house is dusty, you could buy them a new one. <laughs> it's like our kids got it. Our kids understand generosity to the max. They should come see the dust in my house and then see what they, what they buy us. Generosity, it, it's a scary thing as a congregation member to hear a pastor get on stage and talk about generosity because over the years, oftentimes generosity is, all, is, this, is this message that is preached on the brink of some really expensive building project or like some like let's get out of debt type of thing or like let's build the pastor a bigger house type of deal. And um, I want to put you at ease today, we already took the offering. Like we're not passing another plate, you're good, relax, like it's okay. We, we think to ourselves, like, generosity, man, it's got to be way more than money, doesn't it? And you're right. Generosity is way more than money. And so today, what I want to do is, is turn our attentions to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, to see the mark of love for one another as generosity is, exp- is expressed in the community of faith. Acts 2, verse 42. As you're turning there, um, I just want to... Sh- share about Acts. Acts is written by Luke, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's the first book after the Gospels. Luke was hired by a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was this rich Greek man who um, turned his life over to Jesus. He, had, he, he came to understand who Jesus was, and he gave his life to Jesus, and so he started attending with the church 
this Jewish synagogue. And he looked around and he said, you know what? I believe in Jesus, but everyone else around here used to be Jewish. And um, he asked the question that many of you ask when you walk into the doors of church for the first time in a long time. You ask the first question is, is this a cult? And the second question is, is it okay for me to be here? And, and, the, and the third question is, is this too good to be true? These were the three questions that were on Theophilus' mind as he went to worship Jesus together with people that were nothing like him. And so he, being a man of means, had hired Luke to be his investigative reporter. And Luke went around interviewing hundreds of people who actually knew Jesus. Luke would have talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to get all this information about, well, Mary, when did the angel come to you? And, and how did you know you were pregnant? And, and, and the million-dollar question, Mary, are you sure you were? And, right. And, and so he would go talk to his disciples who had seen Jesus. And, 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 and Luke even talked to the people who watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And he records it in Acts chapter 1. Luke joins up with the Apostle Paul and probably visited all throughout the rest of the book of Acts and, and wrote not just as one who had interviewed people, but one who was an eyewitness. And he records for us the explosive growth of this new community in a world that is hostile against Christians. And he shows how Christianity started as this Jewish religion. Out of Judaism came the Messiah and it opened up this way for the, the family of God, the community of God to be birthed so that it didn't matter what nationality you were from. It didn't matter what socioeconomic status you came from. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman or who knows what's in between. It, it didn't matter. All were welcome into this new community of faith. And so Luke writes this for us to understand how all people fit into the community of faith. And he does so showing us what this uncommon community looked like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Read it, read it with me. Check this out. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Let's just stop right there. Four things that this community centered themselves around. The first is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. The apostles' teaching. This was a community that was hungry for the word of God. The community that, 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 that valued God's word being spoken to them. The only problem was is that what we have here, this New Testament, hadn't been put down on paper yet. It didn't exist. And so people would gather together around the people who had spent the most time with Jesus. They were the apostles, his disciples. And they would open up the Old Testament and they would, they would, they would read to one another. They would say, um, hey, this is the reading of the Lord. And then someone, one of the apostles would say, but do you remember when Jesus quoted this verse to us? This is what he said. And the, the apostles' teaching is what paved the way for us to have the, the New Testament, which is inspired by God. It teaches us all that we need to know for life and godliness. And we here at Bethel Church, we also are devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to, to the scriptures. As every week we come together, and, and what do we do? Not opening up Time Magazine up here. Not scrolling through Yahoo News. It's, it's God's word, right? It's God's word open up, bearing its full way down upon our community. That's what we're about. And the fellowship. And aside from that one movie a couple of years ago, The Fellowship of the Ring, we don't really use this word anymore, do we? Like if you and your friend are at work and they say, hey, do you want to go have some fellowship over some coffee? And you're kind of like, what's wrong with you? Fellowship. That sounds so old. 
And it comes from a Greek word. The word is koinonia. It's, it's a strange word. We don't really know how to fully translate it. The best we can come up with is the idea of commonality. Commonality. They, they had commonality together. They, they were people who looked around and they, they, they had many differences, but they realized what we have together is faith in Jesus Christ. And that commonality had paved the way for them to be a tight-knit community. They devoted themselves, thirdly, to the breaking of bread Oftentimes we get the idea that the early church just shared meals all the time, like it was one constant potluck dinner. Um, and for some extent, that was the culture of the day. And in verses 44 and following, we'll see a little bit of that. But this breaking of bread that they devoted themselves to is, is not like showing up at a picnic and having a hot dog. The breaking of bread was the same as that night that Jesus would be betrayed. After the meal, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's communion. This is a community that was so singularly focused on the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they practiced communion together on a regular basis. Likewise, here at Bethel Church, every second Sunday of the month, we dedicate time to the breaking of bread. And fourth, we, we see what this community was devoted to. It was the prayers the prayers. Which prayers? We don't know. How long did they pray? We don't know. Did they, did they pray in a certain way, in a certain language? Did they pray for certain needs? We, we don't know. We don't know. But the point is this, is that they were a community that intentionally gathered together to speak back to God, to have a relationship with God. And I point all this out to, to say this is a community that is rightly related to the word of God. This is a community that is rightly related to each other. And this is a community that is rightly related to God himself through communion and prayer. Now, question. How awesome does that sound? I mean, who wants to go to that church? Seriously, like hands up in the air if you want to go to that church, right? I mean, like all of us, we have this like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, why can't our church be like that? Like, Come on now. It's so easy. It's one verse, four things. How can you screw that up, right? And there's this inner desire for us to like get back to the early church, to get back to that day. And certainly this is something that I pray for in our congregation here on a, on a continual basis. I, I plead with God. I say, God, make us a people of your word. Help us to be a people who, who, have, who have true fellowship with one another, true, true commonality with one another, tr- truly centered around your gospel, remembering your cross and your sacrifice and your resurrection and remembering that we have a relationship with you in prayer. That's something I deeply desire for us. But you're like, man, that was too good to be true. I knew something was coming. There's going to be a little twist. Like, what's, what's the issue with this, Dan? Here's the issue. If, if we, all we know about the early church is what exists between Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and verse 47, we are like... Facebook stalkers, go with me for a second, who only know the good things about someone else's life without actually knowing the person. Have you ever had that experience where you, you went online to see what somebody was like and you saw all these pictures of them on vacation and like they're driving these cool cars and then you actually met them at Starbucks to hang out and they were like a totally different person? Acts 2, 42 to 47 is the Instagram highlight reel of the church. See, if you were to read all of Acts from Acts 1 to Acts 28, Luke 
constantly is recording specific bits of this person went here and said this and it's so specifically remembered and so specifically detailed. And then he'll transition into these summary statements to say, and all of the people were all of these things and having these things and day by day. And then he'll go back to another specific and say, you know, this happened and this happened and this person said this and this person did this and this happened. And, and then he'll go into another summarizing sentence. And the summaries give us the vision of what this church in the power of the Spirit should and could and was like. But it doesn't tell the extensive story of everyone. It'd be very similar if I stood on stage and tried to give you a representative picture of what our campus is like here at HP. And I would say something like, people moved in from out of town and they found deep friendships in small groups. And certainly there are a lot of people who have lived in the region their whole life and have found deep friendships in our church in other areas rather than just small groups. But nonetheless, it's a true statement. It's a summary statement. It's not indicative of everyone, but it is particularly true of some people. And, and, and I say all of this to say, oftentimes we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, and we preach Acts 2, 42 to 47, like I'm about to do, and we leave people with the impression that the early church was it. Like, if only we could get back to that. If only we could go back to the early church. Man, they, they had it all figured out. And I just want to pastorally remind you that there's more to their story than just these couple of verses. Because Acts 5 comes up. Do you remember that story? Where Ananias and Sapphira have a plot of land and they sell it. And they say, here's all the money, but they're like 20% is back at home. Like they got their, their new Lexus is waiting for them back at home. And um, they grieve the spirit. And what happens? They die. Nobody likes to talk about that one. <laughs> No one wants to talk about the early church and, and the issues that existed amongst the people. And, and here's the point. Luke is not trying to show us how perfect the church was. In fact, he was trying to show us that the church was messy. It was a messy people, a real people who, who had to fight to get this together. But under the direction of the Spirit, when they took a step back from their own individual lives and joined together in uncommon generosity, the most amazing things happened among them. And so what I want to do is, is just look with us together to see what is the vision, what do we see here from this early church that we, if we took this seriously here at our, at our campus, what, what would we see God do? In Acts 2.42, it helps us recognize that this is a place that's supposed to be uncommonly generous. So look at verse 44 to 47 with me. Now that I've totally disclaimed all of that so you don't walk out of here going like, man, our church isn't anything like that. We got it better, I promise. No one's, never mind. Someday I'll just talk about the dysfunctions of the early church. I'm really tempted to now, so I'm going to keep moving. Look at verse 44. It says, all who believed. Notice how all of these sentences are connected to the previous one with the word and. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, what, what exists in these few verses are the imaginative beginnings for a community unlike any other marked by uncommon generosity. Now, I see four aspects of uncommon generosity just laid out here in these verses that I think we, we do well to look at. And the first is this. If you, if you take notes, write this down. Uncommon generosity, it holds all things in common. It holds 
all things in common. The Christians were together and they shared their things. This week I did a ton of research into that word for things. Because certainly it doesn't mean what I think it means. And here's what I found out. Scholars agree that the word for things in the Greek literally means all their junk. Like all their stuff. All their possessions, all their accumulative worth, everything that they had, they held it together out for use in the general group. No one exercised their own exclusive rights to ownership over anything. Everything was put to use for the good of the community, which, which if, we're, if we're serious about this and we start thinking about this, it kind of brings out the inner three-year-old in all of us, doesn't it? I have at my house uh, three kids that are incredibly selfish, and my wife is here, and she and I would say there's also two adults in our house that are also very selfish, and uh, five people living under the roof, selfish people, all having to learn how to deal with the commonality of the things that we own. And how many times this week we got a toy for our daughter and all of a sudden our son wants to play with it and she goes, no, it's mine. And she's up in her room locking the door, keeping him away. I don't want him to have it. And how many times do I do this where, where, where I get this thing and I, I want to control it from other people and I, I want to be the one that uses it and, and I, I want to and it's mine. And, and yet what's truly uncommon today is a radical generosity that says what's mine is yours. I've been around many churches now at this point in my life to, to know how this works itself out in the church too. You know, this isn't just a like, God help my family not be so selfish type of moment, but this, is, this happens in churches where um, a budget comes out and we scrutinize it and we go, well, why isn't my prep project getting more money or why is that other group getting more or, or why are we spending this on that? And if you look at ministries who reserve things and they go, well, this is our room and we want to do it our way in our space and this is my time and, and this is where I sit every week. This is my chair and don't you be messing with my chair. And The last service, someone amened me, which I realized I was getting way too close for comfort. So um, I'll just stop right there. But before we think this is a worldly problem that we're greedy people, we have to realize that this happens in the church. But in so many churches where on the countertop is, a, is, is the divisive, this is the women's ministry coffee, don't touch. And then next to it is, this is the men's ministry coffee, don't touch. And feeling left out, you've got the toddler coffee, don't touch. Why do they have toddler coffee? They're naturally caffeinated anyway. But in churches that don't understand the commonality of, of, of all things, realizing that we're all in this together, that, that everything is a, a slice of the big pie, not the little pie, that, that we're all one body working together, churches that don't get that right, blow up in a feud, and it looks like toddlers. Amen? Don't say amen. That's just me saying, like, I think that's true. So what is it that makes us show our uncommonality, show how uncommon this is? It's when we say, hey, all of us have this together. This is for all of us here. To have this mindset requires us to stop thinking like consumers and to start thinking like providers. See, we're naturally consumers in the way that we subscribe to things that we use and, and purchase the things that we want to use and we consume whatever we buy. We're a society that hoards our stuff and worries that it's ours, and, and we'll buy even expensive security systems to protect all of our junk, not realizing that one day we're going to die, and, 
and, and bequeath it all to our kids who are just going to fight over it and then throw it all away. We have such an attraction to our stuff, and yet in the end, what is it? It's worthless. You see, it's not in the accumulation of things, but in the sharing of everything that we find true community. Accumulation and consumption does not create community. Generosity, it requires me to be a giver and to hold all that I have in common with everyone else. The early church had all things in common. So here's how it worked. If, if you belonged in the community, you were looked after by each other. So if you were lacking a car but you needed to get somewhere, you knew that someone had a car and you could borrow it from someone. And if you owned a tool and you knew that someone was going to be building a, a building and needed that tool for their project, you didn't ask like, hey, could you, you be, be helped by this? You brought it to them and said, hey, I know you're doing this thing and this might help you. And if you had something happen in your family that was tragic, the community would come and be there to support you. See, uncommon generosity shoulders all things and shares all things in common. Look at this, verse 45. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Not only did they share what they had, but they sacrificed their belongings to pick up the slack for others. This is truly uncommon. Like, this is truly astounding, isn't it? Uncommon generosity, it says this. this is the second thing, you write this down. Not only does it say all things are uncommon, it says all needs are considered. All needs are considered. This wasn't a common slush fund for each family to dip into whenever they needed a cell phone upgrade or a new ride. Instead, it was, oh, your back's up against the wall, and I see it, and I'm here for you. This is, oh, I see the weight of the world is just crushing you physically, and is there anything we can do to help make your life a little bit easier right now? This is, I know you're in the bottom of the pit, and we're going to give up our stuff so that we can be here with you in the bottom of the pit. This was... It's cold and we don't have jackets. This was the roof on the house is dripping. This was the furnace in the house is broken and we have to fix it. And I wonder, I wonder if, if, um, if someone looked at your budget as a family, would they classify you as an uncommonly generous person? Or does all of the money and all the resources that come into your family get consumed by your family? Like, is there a line item on your budget, your personal at-home budget that says, for the needs of others? And I think a lot of us here, you know, this is an incredibly generous church. I, I'm grateful for that, and I'll actually applaud you in a moment. But I think the way this works out in most of our lives is that we set aside money to give to the church, and we kind of just say, like, well, if I'm giving to the church, I'm being generous. I'm just being generous. I'm giving it up. I'm not using it. Other people don't even give it up. I, I'm giving it up. And... We even here at Bethel Church, we, out of dedication to this verse, we have a benevolence fund. Benevolence means doing good, and uh, it's, a, it's a fund that we use here to just be a blessing to people who are in a tough spot. It's a way that our church actually works this verse out. We're so dedicated to providing for the needs of others and considering all needs that uh, every month on the first Sunday of the month, we pass an offering basket twice. Some of you are like, oh, that's what we're doing. We're not a greedy church. Actually, one of those is for other people. It doesn't stay at our church. It just goes all right out. 
And we have systems in place and, and checks and balances to make sure that what we're doing is being wise stewards with the money that we're enabling other people to have. But truly, we want to have a, a church where all needs are considered. But if your generosity stops at giving to the church or giving to a benevolence fund, perhaps there's a little bit of space in your life for more generosity. Perhaps something is broken in your system where you haven't actually considered the needs of others. How many times have you asked somebody, had somebody come to you and say, hey, you know, this is what's going on, and thought in your own mind, man, I wish I could give more to you. And unless we are a people who plan to give, we will never be generous. Notice what they did. They sold their possessions and their belongings. Like you get the idea from this community that they weren't a rich group of people. They weren't sitting on a, on a trust fund just doling out money to fix people's problems left and right and not feeling the effects of it. No, these were people who gave up what they had to give to others who didn't have. They said, hey, I've got two cars and you don't have any. Here's one. There were people that say, hey, hey, I got all this junk. I don't know what to do with it. After the service, in the last uh, service, one guy came up to me and he was so convicted and I was not really sure where it was coming from, but he goes, yeah, man, I'm selling it all. And I was like, what are you talking about? That wasn't the point of my message. He goes, no, I'm selling it all. I've got this, I got this, this storage unit that my wife and I haven't touched in a year and we're keeping all this junk, for lack of, he used a different word. And uh, he said, we're just gonna sell it all. And he looked at his wife right there and he goes, honey, we're selling it all. And she goes, good. This is what it looked like to say, I don't need this, but you do. And I can turn this into some resource that will help you. This is a group of people, right? They have a grittiness to them. They, they, they have a let's make it work mindset. This is, we'll figure out this problem together. And this is where I personally am always challenged. The word is, I think, convicted. I, I'm, I'm challenged. I think it's from God in, gener in generosity. Generosity is not a wealthy person's job. In fact, I think the more you have, the harder it is for you to be truly generous. You can be lavish. You can be kind. But it's really hard to be generous. And here's what I mean. What we call generosity today is at best sham philanthropy. Oprah goes and she spends a drop in the bucket on a new school somewhere and, and everybody goes, oh, Oprah's so generous. And yet, having not had to give up anything to make that happen. And Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are on a quest to give away all of their money, but, but to an end where their life isn't affected one bit. We see here, biblical generosity is simply this, four words. It's giving by giving up. What is Generosity. It's giving by giving up. That's the call to biblical generosity that we see here by the early church in the example of what happens when the spirit is alive in a community of people. He, he makes them alive with uncommon generosity where they're able to give by giving up. Maybe I can illustrate this for you this way. For the past couple of years, Krista and I have been so blessed by a family at our previous church they're one of those like one percenters, you know what I mean? They're like really rich people, but they're, they're truly generous. I know that they give 
they're not the Zuckerbergs or the Oprahs. They, they give. And here's how I know is that a couple of years ago, they um, were so inspired by this book by Bob Goff called Love Does. And they were so inspired by it, they, just, they, they wanted to, to take what they had been given and steward. And they said, we wanted to just do something nice for our friends around us to, to help them grow in community. So what they did is they bought a house right off of Lake Michigan, up in, up in Michigan. And for the past couple of years, they've asked us, hey, when will you use the house? Not asking, but, but just kind of re- reminding us that they want us to use it. And Kristen and I, we're so grateful. We've got little kids. We're, we're not really, like, capable of, of taking a big extravagant, you know, uh, vacation at this point. And yet, for them to say, we've got this retreat home. It's, it's gorgeous. We want you to use it. Would you use it? So I remember really early on when they had owned this property, we were some of the first people to go there. And we walked in, and the whole place is like a Pottery Barn catalog. And it's all white. And I got little kids, so that's awesome. But it's, it's out of this world. And, and, and I remember walking through their front door for the first time and being so aware of what they gave up for our family to be able to enjoy one another. At the, at the price that they were paying in generosity for us to be able to enjoy some time together. And, and they insisted before we left, after the whole week was over, we had to crawl underneath the table and sign our name on the underside of the dining room table as a reminder of the fact that the good conversation and the joy that had been in this house as just a way to remember God was here in the midst of the good things. I remember going back about a year later, and I remember having a great time, and I remember going underneath this table again to scratch out. The first time I wrote like this lavish thank you note, just like, oh my goodness, thank you guys so much. This is unbelievable. We had such a great time. I don't know how we can ever repay you. This is great. Love it. Thank you. And the next time um, we went back, I was struck by how hard I had to work to find one square inch where I could put my name. Because so many families and so many people had been blessed by this one house. They had over the course of 365 days, probably 100 families come in and just use the place. And I'm sure that not many of us in this room could just buy a piece of land up in Lake Michigan. And if you can, talk to me after the service. And you hear a story like that, and you're like, man, that's like way out of my league. And yet the thing is, all needs are considered. What what are the needs that you see around you, and what resources do you have? And and I think just an equally viable interpretation of this verse is to say, and they rearrange their schedules to spend time with one another. And in the midst of a crisis, they forewent their plans to stay back to make sure that someone was cared for. They gave up to give. See, uncommon generosity, it holds all things in common. It, it sees all needs are, cons- are considered. And Check this out now, verse 46. You guys still with me? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, that breaking bread in their homes is general meals, potlucks and whatnot. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Uncommon generosity, it's all things in common. It's all needs considered. And then and write this down. It's, it's all hearts content. All hearts content. What happens when you are a part of a generous community? Well, all will live their lives praising God with glad hearts. Generosity, then, it's the key to contentment. 
Isn't that a funny paradox of life? That the more you close your fists around the things that you think are so valuable, the things that you have, the more those things will actually control your wants and your desires and your heart, and you will become discontent. But the more you open up your hands to the things that you have, to the people around you, the more you see you are not controlled by your stuff, and you are free towards a life of contentment. Really quickly, I'll illustrate it this way. If you've ever watched uh, TV, and this is a guilty pleasure of people that I know very little about, there's a TV show called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And the statistics tell me that about 80% of you have watched this show. So no confessions in church, it's fine. Um, But the Kardashian family, they're that family that's classically famous for being famous. Like, what have they done? You have no idea what they've done. They're just famous because they're famous. And it's a family that is always trying to get more power, get more money, get more fame. And you see it aired out on TV. Makes for amazing entertainment. Makes for an awful way of living. So clutched with their hands full of what they have. Wanting more. Always discontent. Never getting it. Always fighting. Always at odds. Drama, drama, drama. Tomorrow at 8 a.m. And then a couple of years ago, there was a TV show on that everybody watched. And I don't know where it is anymore. Duck Dynasty? You guys remember that show? Those crazy dudes with the beards? And um, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, who put these guys on TV? And then I realized, oh, they're like loaded. They have tons and tons of money. And you watch Duck Dynasty. It's a totally different different mentality. You watch these guys, and they're playing, and they're having fun, and they're all about their family, and, and they're holding with open hands what they have. And you see the joy that they're showing, whether it's true or not. That's another question, but it's an illustration. Go with me here. And at the end of the episode, remember, they, they always gather around a table, and they break bread with one another, and they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, giving glory to God. You didn't realize this, but the whole premise of the, of the, of the show was built upon Acts chapter 2, verse 46. This was the way that they wanted to show community. Well, illustration over. We see this so clearly that people who are generous care for the community. They practice hospitality. They receive their food with gladness. And when they do so, their hearts are content. And I wonder if your heart has been stirred by the thought of that next thing, getting the next promotion that'll get you the next job, that'll get you the next car, the next house and the next, the next, the next. And yet you never stop to say, what I have right here is enough. Thank you, God. What you've given me is amazing, and I'm so grateful for it. And if that's you, perhaps the starting point for you today is to just start to loosen the grip on the things and to say, God, help me be generous. Help me have a heart that recognizes that I live in community to bless other people. Help me to give by giving up. And finally, we see this, verse 47. There's one area in this new community that is not safe from the greediness among them, and it's okay. They have an area where they're not content, and that's a good thing. Check this out, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This new community of uncommon generosity is one where all salvations were celebrated. All salvations are celebrated. If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you've heard every single message that I've preached has kind of explained an idea, shown it to you, and then shown this last point, and the world is going to see. That's kind of been the whole model of every message that I've given. I'm not a one-note preacher, I don't think, but every, every message in this series has been laid out like this. So, so week one, we realized that God created us in his image. Why? To reflect his image to the world. 
In week two, we saw this, that God loves us with an uncommon love in Jesus. And he says, love like I've loved. Why? So that they'll know you're my disciples. So the world will watch and see. And here we see the effects of our uncommon generosity as we live in community, sharing with one another, caring with one another, imaging the love of Christ, is that souls get saved. And every time, and thank you, every time a soul gets saved, guess what happens? An angel gets his wings. No, 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 no. That's what you learn in that movie. No, every time someone's soul gets saved, you know what happens? The early church would throw a party. They would celebrate. They would go to one of the pools in, in the Judaistic religion. They had pools that were for cleansing. They turned them into baptistries, and they would baptize the person, initiating them into the community, bringing them, welcoming them in. They, they would throw parties like crazy. And every soul counted. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved, which makes every preacher feel insecure. And they come into the community, 3,000 people about. And I've often asked myself this question, why do they count? Like, 3,000, that's, that's pretty good, but, but why count? And then we see in Acts chapter 2, the end of the chapter, says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. He added to their number. Like, what's up with this number thing? Why are they, they counting? Why are they measuring? Why are there numbers? Isn't that unchristian to count? Isn't that unbiblical? Isn't that unspiritual? Some churches, they've so renounced counting, they're like, well, we're not a church that counts. And it's probably because nothing's happening. Sorry, too, too much of a dig? Sorry, I'll back up. I've asked myself, why did the early church count? Was it because they wanted to brag to the early church down the street, the other one in town? No, that church didn't exist. It, was it because they wanted to make sure they were prepared with enough Bibles for the converts that were going to come to? No, the Bible wasn't written. Why did they count? It was so simple, and we miss this sometimes. They counted because people count. They counted because people matter to God and the community. And every time someone is added to the community, every time someone turns their life from walking down a path of darkness and meets Jesus and has their life redirected into the light, every time that happens, it is a miracle, isn't it? I, uh, I think of so many of you who have, the, have had the privilege of praying for a parent or a child for decades, only to see them at one point in their life get saved. And, and I know some of you, you go, you go, I can't believe that happened because I know that person. I know how awful they are. I know how it is terrible they are. And yet God saved even them. What a miracle. And in the early church, these were the people that were living in close proximity to one another, living, doing business with each other, knowing everyone's secrets, knowing everyone's, everyone's dirty laundry. And, 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 and God was saving their souls. And, and every time that happened, the church would get together and say, hallelujah, look, God did it again. Day by day, it says, which doesn't mean every day. It just means on a continual basis. So church, the, the, the church... The church that has the Spirit of God alive, moving in them, the Lord adds to their number on a consistent basis. And check this out. The Lord does it. Like, don't confuse your role here with what God does. He is the power. We are just the conduit. He is, is the substance. We're just the mirror that reflects his glory. 
And yet what happens when the Spirit of God is at work in a group of people and their hearts and minds are so singularly focused upon the finished work of Jesus Christ through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection? It's that they serve one another where all things are in common, where all needs are considered, where all hearts grow to be content, and all salvations get celebrated. People get saved. And this verse, in so many ways, is a promise to us as a church. Almost as if now, 2,000 years later, God is still daring us, saying, hey, don't believe me? Just watch. Just watch. As I close today, I'm reminded of what happened here in our church just this past week in VBS. We had just an amazing week here. VBS is this program that we run every year for um, kids in preschool through elementary school and uh, they come for four days of, of four mornings of fun and teaching and games and crafts, and it's, uh, kids have a blast. And this year, uh, we were so blessed by generosity, so much generosity this past week at VBS. 145 kids were able to be served this week here at our campus. On Thursday, I woke up, and it was pouring down rain. You remember that? Like that, it was like the Wizard of Oz almost. And I thought to myself, like, man, no one's showing up to church today. Like, we had a good run. Monday through Wednesday was great, but no one's coming today. I remember getting here and seeing the parking lot flooded, taking out so much rain, and, and yet a steady stream of parents kept coming in, dropping off their kids, dropping off their kids, dropping off their kids. Why? Because they wanted to make sure their kid didn't miss out. Now, I remember thinking, well, man, we had a lot of volunteers, but they're not showing up today either. And on Thursday, uh, there was over 80 volunteers here in the building the whole week giving up their time, giving up their energy, making balloons, making crafts, teaching lessons, memorizing lines, memorizing dance steps, being with kids, exhausting themselves for the love of Jesus. And I, I remember on um, Thursday, we were encouraging kids. We were, we were having a whole entire time where we asked them, hey, be generous. We want to teach you to be generous. And we set a goal for our kids to raise $1,000, and they, they got like right close to it. These are preschoolers and elementary school kids bringing in their change, all that they have, dumping it into buckets and, and raising money. Why? Because we have friends in Pakistan who are working in a warehouse. It doesn't have a roof on it. They need a new roof so that a school can exist there. And I was so touched on Thursday of the stories of kids who came showing me their bag of money saying, I brought this for our friends in Pakistan. I brought this for our missionary friends. I brought this to give away even heard stories of, their, of, of little kids going to their own piggy banks and, and picking out their own money to bring here to give away. Generosity. I'm so glad we're a church that can teach and model generosity. And I sat in a room on the whole week where the teaching time was, was happening, but particularly on Thursday where we invited kids to say, hey, we've taught you all about Jesus. What are you going to say? What do you say about Jesus? And I sat there as over 22 kids came forward to make some sort of response, some sort of profession to say, I know Jesus is the most important thing and I want to learn more about how to make him my savior. And 22 kids came forward and we got their names and we had conversations with them and we talked to them. And, and the vast majority of these kids were saved for the first time this week here at VBS. Amen. I guess I'm pointing this out to all of you just to say this. When we take our eyes off of ourselves and lift it up to see what God is doing in the community, we realize, number one, that, that this whole thing is not about me. 
And when we lift our eyes up and see what God is at work doing in the community, we see that this is ultimately all about him. All about his glory and his work and his movement in and among us. We are an uncommon people. We are an uncommon community. We serve an uncommon God who gave us uncommon love to live out uncommon generosity. And when we do that, the world sees the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we think about how you move through the early church, God, so much of our heart says do that here, and yet, God, I know you're doing that here. From so many who are generous with their time and their, their money, and their talent, so many here who have given up a week or an hour each week to serve kids at Joanne Martin Elementary School, to the parents who have watched other kids for a couple to send them out on date nights, and from families opening their homes to strangers, for small groups who look for the opportunities to bless marriages and pitch in to supply new parents with the needs that they have, for people blessing families anonymously with groceries and tires in the cars and whatnot, God, you, you are at work here in this community, and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. God, help us to have our focus be upon you, to give by giving up. Help us to, ge- to, to demonstrate your generosity to us, that you gave us eternal life by giving up your son on the cross. Father, as we proclaim that message with our lives, as we proclaim that message with our community, as we proclaim that message here every Sunday, Father, we ask that you would be changing hearts in our midst so that we could celebrate every soul that is saved. It's all this that we ask in your precious and your holy name. Amen.